0: This is Coffee House, and you are in for a treat today because you are going to listen to me exhibit for you in all of its wanting glory my anger and disdain for books that I don't like. <laughs> That's where we are in this one. It's really frustrating. It's Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. It was published in 2011 in Hebrew, 2014 in English, and it's supposed to be a survey of the history of sapiens, of humankind, really. And I read it. I read it beginning to end. It talks about a lot and doesn't say anything. So when it comes to the general tenor of the criticism, and I did not read criticism ahead of time, I tried to make sure not to do that so it doesn't color my thinking on a particular work. But the criticism was the public is pretty positive. It's got pretty positive reviews from just your random person on the street. But scholars with relevant expertise tend to be pretty critical. All right, what are the contents? And this is pretty chunky. I'm going to try to cut out as much as I can. I just have my notes from when I was reading it. And there's a lot of stuff. So I'll try to pare it down at some point. You know, as I'm editing it, I'll try to pare it down so you don't have to listen to all this. But this is primarily what it's about. It's, It's from the Stone Age to the 21st century. It's got four major kind of macro parts. The Cognitive Revolution Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, the Unification of Humankind, and Scientific Revolution. Those are kind of the big chunks that he places the developments in human history in. He begins with some basic. He talks about Neanderthals, or Neanderthals, as the English would say it, which is apparently the proper pronunciation, who have more muscle and larger brains than sapiens. Uh, There were competing theories about the Neanderthals, uh, replacement versus interbreeding theory. And apparently, I know this was actually a pretty recent development, actually, So, because Sam Harris was talking about this, that they found out that Europeans... Definitely interbred with Neanderthals, and about like one to four percent, according to Harari, here one to four percent of Neanderthal DNA is in Europeans. So, we don't know, we don't know what that means or how that affects things, but that's that's where it is. And then he tries to kind of narrow down what makes us sapiens so super special. He talks about a tra- tree of knowledge, mutation, and language, and posits that the ability to speak about fictions is the biggest distinction between humans and animals, it allows cooperation flexibility in large numbers. The natural size of a group might be up to 150, but larger groups are possible probably because of the ability to engage in fiction. And then he goes through some fictions like religions and nations and legal systems and talks about how those things are actually fictional. And so much, as I'm going through this book, it feels like a survey Western civilization course, you know, or really rudimentary philosophy course. It's just, there's nothing rigorous about it. <laughs> You know, it's not really trying to explain something. It's not really trying to get to some kind of an answer. It's just kind of a, blah, here you go. Deal with all this information. Most of which, anybody who's reading this will have heard already, and there's not enough detail of things you haven't heard of to make it worth the trip. But as he says, uh, what, who was it? It was Benedict, who was it? Not Benedict Arnold, not Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Anderson? I don't who was it? There was something about imagined communities and the reification of like, nations and all that stuff. Who, hi, oh, I can't remember now. But that was definitely one of the first things I read in undergrad, and it talked about how all these things are imaginary. But so, for Harari, it's saying that religions, nations, legal systems, those are imaginary things that we all agree upon, so that's the only reason that they work. Okay. Then he, there's this chapter, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve, where he talks about hunter-gatherer brains per evolutionary biologists and how our hunter-gatherer brains are just trying to function in a modern world and the ancient commune theory, where you just had a whole bunch of people like on a commune, and that's how we function, that's how our brains are, Are structured. He suggests that there really hasn't been a natural way of life. You know, there's not one mode within which humans functioned you know for an extended period of time that there were a bunch of different modes so questions the whole hunter-gatherer brain thing and the ancient commune theory he talks about the wiping out of the australian megafauna and other megafauna across the globe and how much humans were involved in that extinction and that half of the big beasts ended up extinct because of predation on the part of humanity not the manatee the manatee was fine but humanity they were the ones doing the predations okay now we're, we're talking about the agricultural revolution from 9500 to about 8500 that it was much more difficult than people expected and actually had a, a negative effect on survival like an ability to produce stuff and caloric intake or something like that despite and like again if you've read anything ever then you've probably heard this <laughs> that the agricultural revolution wasn't as effective as people like to think it is that it was just a turning point and everything is wonderful it wasn't the case per horror here and per what I know at least, trying to quantify that or figure out how much it matters uh, you know, that's a different question. And he brings up oh, there's this weird kind of thing because he talks about cattle and chicken evolution, the success of those organisms and how well they've done, but they have to go through suffering and subjugation. And he says something weird about how their aggression and sexuality are contained like they need to have open sexuality I I don't know how much we need to be reading into making sure that chickens have a quality sex life Maybe I misread that part. We end up in the pyramids. It brings up Hammurabi and the myth of rights. So again, rights are another things that are mythological. They're not real things. They're imaginary things. It's just things that we agree on. Obviously, seriously first year college philosophy course. Uh, this is what you're going to run into. It talks about human equality and whether humans are equal and what happiness is and that there are no natural rights that we just imagine that there are natural rights and that an imagined order is in danger of collapse if everybody isn't Doesn't believe it. The questions of are humans equal and what is happiness? Sure, interesting questions. Uh, Again, there's not much of actual substance here as we go through it but they would be fun questions to just actually analyze in their own rights uh, in a systematic and rigorous way. Anyway, he's got this chapter titled There's No Justice in History, the point of which I don't know. It's just to recount all of the bad things that have happened historically for some reason. Caste systems, rich and poor, black and white, imagined hierarchies, myths about blacks, racist myths persisting after slavery. I so was losing interest already in this book, but then it gets into, again, these are extremely complicated topics, and he barely has anything to say about them except for towing the social justice line. Just virtue. It's not even the social justice line. It's just, okay, what's the very generic virtuous thing that I could say in this instance? Let me say that. And that's all there is to it. So what's the point of saying it? What's the point of having a whole chapter about this nonsense? He's just asserting the virtuous point of view and just putting it on page and for no reason whatsoever. And then there's something about uh, if it's only money, then all the distinctions between people should have gone away when it comes to race. But he says, prejudice become more and more entrenched, which means nothing. I mean, by what standard, in what places, by what measure? I just, again, it's saying the generic virtuous thing for no point but to say the generic virtuous thing. And it's wasting your time as a reader to have to go through these things and hear what anybody would say at any given time if you ask them about anything. Just these vague terms of, I'm virtuous. Don't worry about it. Talks about standards of beauty and says, men have gotten the better deal. So then we go into gender issues which is one that just drives me insane. Jordan Peterson talks about this all the time. It's ridiculous to talk about it in terms of oh just men have been so dominant historically and today they're just so dominant and that's the only story that we're looking at here. Men are more likely historically to be killed in every war ever. They're more likely to be assaulted, more likely to be killed just in general. They're more likely to commit suicide, more likely to be alone, more likely to have so many of the very very worst things possible happen to them. That's not to discredit the, you know, like the Greeks in who infanticided on the basis of gender, <laughs> took out the girls because they thought they were less valuable. That's not to discredit that situation over there, but to just broadly say that men have just gotten a better deal is, again, just generic virtue signaling. It's it's just, I'm exhibiting my generic virtue. It's It has no philosophical or intellectual value whatsoever. He goes into, oh, homosexuality, whether it's biologically determined or imaginary. It talks about natural and there's little sense in arguing women should give birth because it's natural, but people shouldn't be homosexuals because that's natural. Of course, the natural are... There are... Again, this is a really complex topic, actually. Because all the worst things that we've ever done are natural. They're things that are done in nature because we are part of nature. So, it's a kind of a ridiculous distinction. And kind of a ridiculous justification. Just like if somebody said, we should eat animals because it's natural for us to eat animals. That's not enough. You don't just get to say that and leave it at that. Same thing with homosexuality. Obviously, anybody who isn't just completely deranged by having to show their virtue anybody would know that homosexuality would be a less successful reproduction strategy for the most most of our history based on all sorts of evolutionary factors so it's just it's not that complicated obviously it does no harm to anybody today so i mean the only harm it would be such a tenuous harm that you could pull out of whatever related to the strength of families or just the extended extenuating circumstances related to okay now we have to push out to this group and that group and it's all identity stuff now and your sexuality matters and all that i mean that's all attenuated harm that's issuing from the fact of accepting homosexuality but still today it's pretty easy to say that it doesn't do much to me just like that louis ck joke they're not sword fighting over my cereal so what does it matter It's just, it's pretty easy to, to go along with that. You don't need a whole bunch of philosophy based on what's natural and what's not natural. And sexuality is such a stupid, it's one of those concepts, it's one of those goofy freaking concepts that it would take a couple of hours just to parse out all the definitions so we can get this laid out. And then men and women's social categories. So I just actually, who was it on YouTube? What's her name? Aiden Paladin. She's wonderful. She's got a lot to say because it's a complex topics, but she's still wonderful. As far as I know, she's studying psychology or sociology I think sociology but she's she takes a very specific academic approach to understanding and explaining all these issues and she was just talking about how the whole social construct theory about genders the guy came out with an article and said that well he kind of mostly made all that stuff up and I didn't finish the video yet it's like an hour and a half something like that but the standard she was bringing up is like falsifiability and reproducibility and, and talk about how scientific what this whole social construct idea is. But so here, Harari's talking about the social categories of men and women, and they have a tenuous, if any, relationship to biology. I'm, I'm sure you're the expert on this stuff. Obviously, men and women are different. They're not as different at the center of the bell curve. There's actually quite a bit of overlap when it comes to any given trait, but it's at the extremes of the bell curves that you have way different representation when it comes to all, you know, any major characteristic that you want to talk about, whether it's aggression or intelligence or agreeableness or some of those things along those lines, then you're going to find that there's a lot of overlap in the middle of the bell curve, but at the ends, there are very different numbers when it comes to representation between men and women. Biology has a lot to do with the way people... people are it's always it's so funny too because we really need to define this stuff i think i've talked about it before but the reality is that any social response any response to stimuli that you could have when it comes to being socially engineered or anything like that is going to be governed by your biology your biology is going to govern the elasticity of your response to stimuli so it's ridiculous a priori to separate just whole by whole cloth just completely separate biology and social like those are completely separate things it's just it's ridiculous on its face. Anyway, so he calls them myths. He calls the social categories of men and women myths. And there are constant changes and becoming a man or woman is difficult business. There's a claim to manhood and men are more valu- are valued more highly than women, which is, again, incredibly broad statement that doesn't actually mean a whole lot. But men are treated as expendable. We're the only ones who have to register for the selective service so that we can become property of the state if a war happens. The vast majority of men are not valued whatsoever. They are seen as fodder, cannon fodder, or they're just tossed out to the street or whatever so obviously you'd have to really parse that out and figure out some definitions to figure out what you're really talking about so it's just vague here patriarchy through history again see what I talked about before talks about physical strength and men having more physical strength but women are more resilient to disease and here's something that really frustrates me about this whole topic because it's incredibly patronizing just like Barack Obama he recently talked about he went and did this talk and talked about how if women ran the world it would be so much better and every time you hear there's like a guy on stage who's married and he's like oh my wife is so much smarter and better at everything than I am and and any woman would do a better job than I do or you know those kinds of things where it's incredibly patronizing and they're just saying it because they're women because the the subject is women and they would never say it the other way around if it were actually true or anything like that it's incredibly patronizing and it doesn't have the effect of trying to make sure that that's a superficial characteristic that we're not taking into account when it comes to an individual it it doesn't have that effect. It has the effect of putting women into a psychological category of being, of needing some kind of special praise and needing some kind of special support. It's, it's really patronizing. But so here, like I'm saying, he says, oh, it's, yeah, no, men, they seem like they have more physical strength, but women are more resilient to disease. And some women are stronger than men. What is the point of saying that? Some women are taller than men. Some women like more action movies than men. Come on. What is the point of that? And that women have the best social skills and then he talks about how strong men aren't important anymore and about the poor women that are kept out of war so they didn't have to die and women stereotypes and women being dependent historically and that some animals are matriarchal and females more interested in social networks and brings up bonobos and elephants and how they have a, a different hierarchy they don't have a gender gendered hierarchy they just kind of go at it who cares so why not homo sapiens again it's it's incredibly patronizing and it's just it goes down the line of no look i'm one of the good ones i'm white knighting for the for the females it's it's ridiculous uh, so he talks about how the gender roles changed and how they're changing uh, now going forward. And the gender gap is changing. I can't remember if he's explicitly talking about like in employment or wages. We've talked about that before. It's absolutely ridiculous. And anybody who proffers just the basic single variable of they make different amounts overall when it comes to the entire population. Anybody who does that is just completely fear-mongering and doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. So fight them on the beaches. Fight them on the whatever... <laughs> Churchill said, do that when it comes to this stupid gender wage (laughs) gap. Talk about it's, uh, based on unfounded myth instead of biological fact. The differences between genders. No, it's not. Not even close. There are certain differences in biological fact that many of the differences, if not the majority or virtually all of the differences are founded upon. And that's not to say, I mean, I was thinking about this recently because I've been looking more into a lot of Middle Eastern countries and the abuses that go on there because I want to remember what, what it's like to actually, <laughs> to actually, where oppression actually exists. And I would take all of the ridiculous, unfounded, fear-mongering hostility of the feminists in Western civilization, I would suffer that to the end of time to solve the kinds of oppression that women have to deal with in other countries, the yoke that they are under in other countries legally, and the fact that they're practically taken by a leash by men here and there, and they have to be covered to this point, and they just get indoctrinated into these absolutely terrible ideas and have to fight to be able to you know, go to school or- whatever those are real situations those are real problems legal inequality is are the things that everybody in western civilization should be fighting they should be demanding that other countries get rid of those things not throwing a fit here because they don't understand math which is furthering the (laughs) stereotypes stereotypes sorry Oh my gosh, Uh, so then he talks about guaranteeing everyone does what he wants undermines equality. It sure does. Democrats want a more equitable society, but that infringes on freedom. Republicans want more freedom, even if it means greater inequality. You know, it's really vague, obviously, but those are generally true statements. And I can't remember what side he came down down on, if any, so I would applaud if he just wanted to say that. But again, that's something that most people would know before they ever came to this book, if they've ever read anything ever or seen a movie. <laughs> if you've ever watched Avengers, you probably understand this point. So I don't know why it needs to be said here. He goes into money, how that's imagined, imaginary. Empires, and I think actually in the Empire section was the one time that he said something interesting. <laughs> Because he talked about how empires are actually pretty useful. And and they did a lot of great things in various ways. He didn't just toe the generic virtue line of evil colonialism. He actually had a couple of things to say about empires. And then he goes into religion, religious wars, polytheism versus monotheism. He talks about the Egyptian guy, Akhenaten, who had an attempt at monotheism, but people didn't like it. So after he died, they just got rid of it and went back to polytheism. Of course, none of our religions now are actually monotheistic. All that extra stuff. We're we're going to, I told you we're going to read the Quran at some point, but I don't know. It just seems like, obviously when you've got devils and angels and all that stuff, it's just different names to try to get out of the area of polytheism. You know, you've got a tripartite God <laughs> just to avoid polytheism. And if you've got an impish evil guy on the other side who's, no, he's not a God though. He's not a God. You've got angels doing weird stuff. They're not gods. Okay. You've got demons. They're not gods. you got all these super special people with superpowers. So they're not gods. Don't worry about it. <laughs> And, alright, uh, he brings up dualism, the problem of evil. I don't know what any of this has to do with. Again, this is like first year philosophy course. I don't know what any of this has to do with a larger idea here or what he's actually trying to get across or why anybody should have read this instead of just the Wikipedia page on like the history of religion. Brings up Zoroaster, the progenitor of the Western religions. Zoroastrianism is actually pretty interesting stuff. Ahura Mazda and all that jazz. Brings up Buddhism. Again, this is just like a survey. That suffering arises from craving. So the first question that Buddhists ask is... Suffering exists. How do I escape it? Rather than for other religions, which is God exists. What do I do? Buddha says suffering exists. How do I escape it? And suffering pre-exists God, which is fascinating uh, that you can trump a deity like that. Of course, Christians would just say no. Suffering is imposed upon, and He will relieve your suffering once you die and you're good and all that stuff. But still, it's it's an interesting idea to think to just think that a God would be pre-exist by something like suffering. Uh, I mean, obviously, suffering as a concept is. Dependent upon biology It's not a real thing It's not reified by the fact that You know Philosophy or anything like that But It's an interesting thing And just to not have cravings You know Buddhism That is It's not great for industry (laughs) <laughs> and it's not great for uh, sating your appetite or anything like that, but it's it's interesting idea to think about. It talks about communism and Nazism. My my professor in undergrad always said Nazism instead of Nazism, and I think that's the right pronunciation, but it always annoyed me. <laughs> so uh, he brings those up as some kind of super order. Oh, this is like a different... That's right, because he goes into humanism, and how humanism brought around evolutionary humanism, which is what all the evil people use to justify their evilness and... and and that's the only kind of humanism that broke away was the one advocated by the Nazis. That's all we got out of human. Oh, of course, it's just nonsense. Obviously, there are many uh, ethical schools related to a secular idea about what is good and what is not good, and figuring out what meaning is and all that sort of stuff. So it's ridiculous to reduce it to the one thing. And of course, again, it's the big tent pole in the 20th century. I wonder how long it's going to take until Godwin's law no longer applies. You know, how long is it going to take until nobody's bringing that guy? guy up anymore. I, uh, not Godwin, the, the BH guy. <laughs> uh, he goes into the secret of success. What is this one about? Historical determinism, uh, different kinds of, so there's like level one versus level two chaos, like weather chaos and historical chaos. I can understand from like a social sciences standpoint to separate those two things, but obviously those, I mean, those both are still natural processes, but Anyway, questions, why study history? talks about an arms race not directed at enhancing human well-being. I mean, whatever. Again, there's so many vague just assertions all over the place. It's barely worth it. Obviously, somebody would say that detente was completely worth it, that when both parties, uh, multiple parties around the globe, have enough power at their fingertips to wipe out uh, the other ones in one fell swoop, that it's just not worth the fight. So that could be enhancing human well-being rather than having weapons that aren't so powerful that somebody might use because it's not going to do that. And because they don't have to worry about being annihilated. He goes in the scientific revolution, last part, and he talks about statistics, which is an extremely important topic that nobody knows enough about. <laughs> and Most people don't know enough about. You know, so, China invented gunpowder and then didn't use it because culturally they didn't want to use gunpowder because they thought they should fight close up and all that stuff. So, great, so fascinating. Americo Vespucci and Columbus and the Spanish and the Aztecs and Cortes captures Montezuma and then issues rulings via Montezuma and the leads to eventually... Vote. It's just, I mean, again, extremely basic history course stuff. And it's just, uh, not worth it. Brings up capitalism, blames capitalism for slavery and the opium War- wars, and then makes the assertion that capitalism has killed millions out of greed. Great! And how many has it saved? Uh, how many has it saved by drastically improving not only the lifestyles and feeding processes and sanitation and medicine, but just the interrelatedness of international communities and and national communities and local communities. So did you account for that? Did you subtract that from it? Or did you just want to say capitalism is evil murder? And then he talks about animal farming, which I have a whole episode on that. But he just uh, toes the generic virtue line of animal farming so bad. Okay, so A Permanent Revolution. This one's about the Barnum family. Not the show, but something about parental authority on retreat. Oh no. Uh, Which, yes, I mean, it is concerning. Uh, One thing you learn is as a kid, at least you used to, is feel to your parents which was mostly good and sometimes bad (laughs) but that made you more inclined to involve yourself in the polis you know to be involved in it to be a contributing member to it instead of just being a whiny it's all about me everybody talk about me don't you care about who I'm having sex with kind of nonsense so and oh here's the second uh, so this is the second one, two of two of interesting things that were said he said that the peace prize ought to have gone to Oppenheimer maybe for the whole bomb thing which again that's two interesting things in the book so far and then he questions whether we are living happily after ever after talks about baby mortality a drop drop in wars the invention of medic- medicine um and talks about marriages It's the causation versus correlation, so whether marriages lead to happiness or happy people end up getting married. Good question, and it's something that should be looked into. Obviously, marriage rates are on the steep decline, and there are likely very many contributing factors to that fact, and not the least of which, this is a shout-out to you, Ben Shapiro. Uh, The decline in religion, notwithstanding all of my disdain for religion just in general, it absolutely has a huge impact on the family, the family unit, and people's commitment to community and all that sort of thing, I'm sure. But still, it's going to be chicken egg. You know, what caused what. Then he goes into some Brave New World talk, how you manipulate biochemistry. Talks about genetic engineering and future engineered gods like Eva from Ex Machina. You know, she's just going to take over and it's just going to be her now. Abusing poor... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Poor virginal little guys who are nerdy and just studied coding. And now they think they're going to get to hook up with a robot chick and she just uses him to get out. Yeah, so. Oh, spoiler. Oh, no. If you guys haven't seen that. <laughs> spoiler for the movie. Uh, So that's, that's pretty much the book. That's pretty much the book. The book didn't set out to accomplish anything and it didn't accomplish anything. It just, it really felt like a Western Civ survey course. And that's not, like, I'm not trying to be all holier than thou. I know so much about things. This is literally so many things that anybody who has an undergraduate education or read a couple of books, they're going to know about all these things. It's just so not worth it. Here's what a number of scholars said about this book. The anthropologist Christopher Robert Halpike reviewed the book and did not find any serious contribution to knowledge. (laughs) That's that's pretty rough. Halpike suggested that whenever his facts are broadly correct, they're not new, and whenever he tries to strike out on his own, he often gets things wrong, sometimes seriously. (laughs) The science journalist Charles C. Mann concluded in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Quote, There's a whiff of dorm room bull sessions about the author's stimulating but often unsourced assertions. End quote. Reviewing the book in the Washington Post, evolutionary anthropologist Avi Tushman points out problems stemming from the contradiction between Harari's free-thinking scientific mind and his fuzzier worldview, hobbled by political correctness. Reviewing the book in the Guardian, philosopher Galen Strawson concluded that among several other problems, much of *Sapiens* is extremely interesting and is often well expressed. As one reads on, however, the attractive Features of the book are overwhelmed by carelessness, exaggeration, and sensationalism. End quote. Now, <laughs> I'm being pretty rough on this book. Obviously, I didn't write a book like this. I didn't publish a book like this. I didn't have a best-selling book like this. So that, on its on its own, just putting all this stuff together and getting some stuff out there, that's an accomplishment. I'm not gonna take that away. It's just if you're gonna do it, like, put some real effort in. Try to contribute to the zeitgeist. Contribute to the body, the canon. They'll just cough something up and say, that's good enough. Reviewing the book in The New Atlantis, John Sexton, graduate student at the University of Chicago, concluded that, quote, the book is fundamentally unserious and... Undeserving of the wide acclaim and attention it has been receiving. And my final thought, like Jerry Springer, nobody's going to get that reference. It makes people feel smart because it's not especially challenging and they are already generally familiar with everything. So that's that's probably the reason that it got a lot of lay support because it makes people feel smart. They can just race on through it and like, oh, look, I, I read a really important book. So that's that. That's Sapiens. If you want to read it, you can read it. I don't <laughs> suggest it. You know, you could skim the Wikipedia page, if anything, or read a couple of reviews of it or just some summary if you want to but otherwise there are so many books out there and so many books that are going to have new ideas and more detail and more concrete opinions and more concrete arguments that you can engage so this one is not necessary not necessary but anyway that's the last coffee house thank you guys so much for listening anybody who stuck through this whole mammoth of a freaking review i really appreciate it i hope all is well i'm sorry for the impeachment episode (laughs) that she had to struggle with me through that one i'm sorry for the delays but otherwise we're going to keep it going more books on the horizon and maybe a couple of movies here and there hope all is well okay bye